All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best? You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcast. Hello and welcome to your podcast. This is Gary Schaller. With me is Ken Mills and we've got a great bunch of people here to talk about Destroyer Resurrected, which is an all-new version of a great old record. And uh, joining us tonight is my brother Brian on the line. It's good to have him on again. We've got John Humphrey from the band Seether, great drummer and great guy, longtime Kiss fan. And we've got Julian Gill, the webmaster and author from KISS FAQ or KISS FAQ, whatever you want to call it. You know you love it. We've also got Matt Porter from the KISS Room. So sit back, relax, and let this stuff pump through your speakers. This is part one of a two-part special on Destroyer Resurrected. Jim Koplick and Shelley Finkel present KISS at the Hartford Civic Center, Wednesday night, February the 16th at 7.30 p.m. at the Hartford Civic Center, the group that you've got to see to hear. Tickets on sale at the Hartford Civic Center box office. All tickets run outlets, Tech Stereo in Enfield, Harvest in Manchester, and Marty's Bloomfield. Kiss at the Hartford Civic Center, Wednesday night, February the 16th at 7.30 p.m. We promised we wouldn't do it. We said we weren't gonna, and now Kiss gave us an excuse to do a Destroyer roundtable. I mean, arguably, we could spend an entire show on each of these nine songs because they're so famous, so iconic, and maybe so perfect. But Kiss re-released the record. Destroyer Resurrected is out in stores now. Go get your copy if you haven't already. You could also download it from iTunes. They went back. Bob Ezrin went back into the studio, went back to the original tapes. He remixed it. He remastered it. He found things that we didn't even know were there. You've got Ace's original solo for Sweet Pain got a little bonus business you've got a brand new sounding album for 2012 that we've been loving since 1976 but before we get into each song and every little minute detail listen to this this is a compilation of some of the behind the scenes making of destroyer things that maybe some of you have never heard i hope you enjoy it
So I want to go around the round table here and just kind of get a brief story from everybody about first time you heard Destroyer, the original Destroyer. Go back in time. So, Ken, why don't you kick it off? Okay. Well, um, I remember trying to find the album when it came out. It was it was difficult to find, and my mother went looking for it at various record stores. And I remember she bought me Abbey Road because she couldn't find Destroyer. And I'm a huge Beatle fan, but it wasn't the same as seeing kiss destroyer on the on the dining room table you know what i mean uh, and and right. trust me i love the beatles they're my number one band but i really want to kiss destroyer so it it took me a while to have it i went to a friend's house his name was colin goss and he had the album and i remember just sitting in his room and we listened to that thing over and over and over again and i remember noting at the time the difference between the previous three albums and alive and and the production on this and i'd been a big fan of alice cooper and i could hear bits of billion dollar babies production all over it and you could also tell that the band was going for more of a Sgt. Pepper's kind of a vibe. And I remember seeing the press at the time where they had uh, Bob Ezrin in his tux and, you know, with the choir, you'd see pictures like that. And it was it was a very interesting time, but it was, it was definitely a departure for Kiss. And some of the older fans who were into the first three albums, the rawness of the first three albums, were not that happy with what they were hearing in some ways. Were you? Uh, it was Kiss. Uh, I think that all of us, uh, don't, you know, like when you're young, your, your filter for what's good and what's bad sometimes takes a while to develop. I just knew that it was Kiss. And you were already a Beatles fan. I mean, I wonder if being a fan of the Beatles kind of sets you up to appreciate that a band could sound a different way on different records. Well, being a Beatles fan, I was used to a band that actually matures over time and changes their sound. Uh, I don't think KISS fans are like that for the most part. You think that they want to hear Hotter Than Hell and Dress to Kill on every and, album and rock yeah, and roll over? And, you know. Pretty much, pretty much. I think I think to some extent that that's true for some fans. I you know I, I've I mean I think Destroyer the popularity of it and the fact that it's stood the test of time may be the exception to that. And um, and yeah, there's still that kind of when KISS takes a left turn, the fans you know the fans don't tend to embrace that. John Humphrey from Seether. Yeah, actually, the first time I heard Destroyer, uh, a friend of mine, a buddy of mine uh, who lived in my neighborhood, a kid I grew up with, fellow Kiss fan, had it. So it was one of those deals where he had, uh, you know, one of those not-so-great-sounding portable Kiss record players, and his parents had bought him Destroyer. So uh, at that point... Uh, Collecting the catalog, I was a little uh, in disarray. This would have been already 1979, 1980, so Destroy had been out for several years. So I had heard the Kiss Alive 2 version at this point. I'd heard songs off double platinum. So to hear Destroyer was a bit different for me. So the songs and the versions I'm used to uh, were the Kiss Alive 2 versions, Detroit Rock City, God of Thunder, um, you know, so to hear them uh, on Destroyer and the effects, the full car crash and everything uh, was a bit different for me. It, it was a great effect, 
uh, and hearing those songs and, and, you know, the effects that were added, but it, but it was a little, you know, kind of getting used to for me. And, uh, like I always say, it's a very important album into the Kiss catalog and has a lot of classic songs on it. But those versions of the songs, uh, were, it took a little time for me to get used to. Matt, what about you? You know what? I, I really don't have any of that context of Beatles or Alice Cooper or anything. To me, it was, I got into it around, you know, 76 when, you know, Rock and Roll Over was out and then kind of going back and getting Destroyer and Alive in the first three albums. And it was kind of like, wow, all this stuff at once. And so it was really kind of like, and, and I mean, obviously I think of Paul Lynn Halloween special around that time they were doing stuff from Destroyer. And this was the, I can remember that was the first time really seeing them walk and talk and be alive on the TV and like just being blown away by that. But not really having any of that context of that they were trying anything different. It just all sounded like that they were this superhero band. I mean, clearly the cover, you know, to me, I was big into comic books and, and it just all seemed to fit together as far as this idea of, you know, these superheroes who were making rock and roll. Mm hmm. No, yeah. Absolutely. And and I, I guess I'll go next just to sort of piggyback on what you're saying. For me, it, it made perfect sense. I got into Kiss in 1980, 1981, around that time. Um, and I already had the comic and I already had Kiss Alive. And, and I knew that they were on the shelves of stores as action figures and lunchboxes. So the um, the drama and the theatricality and the, and the um, diversity of the sounds on Destroyer really made sense to me. The, the the Gene Simmons solo album was my first record. So it didn't surprise me to hear things like Great Expectations or Beth. I just loved every minute of it, and, and it's still one of my favorite records. Julian, what about you? Well, mid-'80s is obviously when I got into Kiss, so my first interaction with any of what was on Destroyer came through Double Platinum, actually. So I always see Do You Love Me as the starting point for the album, even though it's not. When I did eventually get the album, it was more just because it was a, uh, you know, like cool cover. I didn't really have context of uh, where it was in their recording history, the development that, you know, it uh, come up 73 to 75. So it, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but then looking at the album, when I started listening to it as a whole product, it was just, uh, it, was, it, it stood out from everything else I'd heard up to that point as just being um, utterly incredible. You know, Julian, you mentioned the cover. This is one time I feel where you almost can judge a book by the cover. Uh, it, it is such an excellent album cover. What was it that jumped out at you about that? Just just the pose, the cartoonishness of it. You know, it, it wasn't like designed like, uh, I guess, rock and roll over. You know, it, it stands out from the rest of the covers in that period. You know, it's the first one to really have the, the you know, the Ken Kelly animated feel to it. And it's the first one I saw on the shelf so you know just had that impression in comparison with something say like dynasty which uh you know was one of the other ones i saw at the same time and i mean i'm even thinking about the comparison ken you know between uh destroyer and abbey road <laughs> because you said you know you love the beatles but it was a little bit of a disappointment seeing that on the table and i'm thinking well here's a bunch of guys walking across the street um I want I want monsters running right at me with a you know a, sm a smoldering town in the background, right? You know exactly. Uh, and Brian, what about you? I, you know I know that you kind of grew up probably hearing it in the womb, thanks to me. But yeah, I think my yeah I think my story is kind of similar to uh, Julian's. I think I heard <clears throat> different bits and pieces of it uh, in different places on mixtapes that you made me 
probably on double platinum as well. Um, but I think Destroyer was actually the first Kiss album I owned. I had it on cassette, and I very distinctly remember taping it, dubbing it from one cassette to another because I wanted to make sure I could have it in two places at once as if I would need it in two places at once. And I think the original one got sucked up into the cassette deck at one point. Well, see, that was um, smart. It was good, good planning yeah, on your good part. Good <laughs> I had, for the longest time, a cassette of Houston 77 stuck. It couldn't get out of the uh, cassette uh, player on the car. I mean, it literally, you pressed eject and it wouldn't. So, I mean, at least I had that in there. That was good. Um, but le- let me let me ask people this, okay? So, now that you've heard the whole the whole lot of it, now, now that we do have that context, right? Because it sounds like Ken was basically it was you that was the only one of the lot of us who uh, who heard Destroyer in context, right? Who got alive in the first three records first, and then heard Destroyer. Once again, pointing out my old age. Right. So, so Methuselah. Um, since you're the only one who's old enough. Well, when I was a Kiss fan. So now that everybody has actually figured out the context and, and can appreciate it, uh, why was there such a backlash? Kiss was known for rock and roll or rock and roll, as a matter of fact. I remember that being bandied about in some of their press at the time. Uh, I don't know where that came from or why that came, but... Uh, what it, was it? it? it rock and Rolla. Rock if, and Rolla. Yeah, if, if you go back and read clippings from back then, Kiss was trying to define their sound in the press, and, you know, you've heard everything from Buffalo Rock to, you know, heavy metal to hard rock, thunder rock... You know, all these different things, and Rock and Roller was one of those things. And if you listen to the first three albums, there's a lot more from the school of Chuck Berry than there is from the school of Alice Cooper. Right. Right. But I'll tell you what, though. Uh, For me, I think if I were to look at, uh, you know, look at Destroyer in context, I don't think it's the music that sets Destroyer up. You know, in other words, Alive doesn't really set us up for Destroyer necessarily. I'll tell you what does, though. It's those notes that they wrote inside of Destroyer, inside of Alive, rather. You know, where Gene wrote his note, and, and uh, Ace wrote his note, and Lydia wrote Peter's note. And, um, Ouch! Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, that to me is sort of the, the, the start of really exploring who those characters are. And then we get Destroyer, where I think that's the first time they really musically started exploring the idea of having these characters because on the first three records, yeah, they got dark uh, for Gene's songs. Yeah, they got kind of like glammy for Paul's material, sort of. But they never really went deep. And Destroyer seems like where they went deep, with one glaring exception. That is Ace. What happened with Ace? Not sure. I don't understand that. But it did seem like, you know, I, I, I can almost imagine a time when Ezrin sat down with them and said, now look, we're going to give you all a featured moment. You know, whether it be Paul's for Do You Love Me or Jeans with God of Thunder, Peter with, with Beth. It does seem strange that something was lacking for Ace. I, I, I have no explanation for it. Other than an incredibly long card game, which, you know, it's totally unfair because the guy does some stellar work on the album. So one card game aside, it, it does not make up for Ace not having a vocal on that album. It almost makes sense that uh, Shock Me should have wound up on Destroyer in a sense, if you will. Mm-hmm. I, I know that it couldn't have happened because of the way events that led up to inspire that, but you know what I'm saying. Right. No, I know. 
Julian, what are your thoughts as to why there is no ace spotlight? I think he simply wasn't ready at that point. You know, I don't think it has anything to do with Bob. I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, card games. It's just very limited contributions in terms of what he brought songwriting-wise to the sessions. Um, and I, I think it revolves around the decline, really, of where he was and the, the partying starting to become a little bit more a part of his lifestyle. But in, in juxtaposition, if you put rock and roll all over on it, that is an Ace Frehley album. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there are, every solo is its own song. You know what I mean? Without a doubt. I mean, guitar, as, a, as a guitar player, he's all over the album. And, you know, on rock and roll over as well. But that's only, it, it only seems to be with the next album that they started thinking about the four characters. You know, they're, they're not, I really don't see them thinking about that in Destroyer. I tell you, one of the things that I've loved about this resurrected version is that the guitars sound so much uh, punchier. They're, they're very crisp. Um, they're very well-defined versus, I think, on, on the original version that we all grew up with, there's a kind of a muddiness. It's like that um, that wall of sound kind of vibe from Motown or, or Phil Spector, right? It, it, now the guitars sound like Kiss guitars. It almost could, you know, parallel rock and roll over. And that really helps out in the ace department because now it actually sounds like you have ace on those tracks. I, I don't know. I didn't, it didn't feel like ace was on there initially. What do you think, Matt? You know, I think that the whole album definitely, it sounds bigger and I think broader. They kind of separated the sounds out more. Also, mm -hmm. I think, and I think a lot of us, I mean, myself included, I have a lot of the CDs that were the ones that were issued back in the 80s when CDs were kind of new, and they're not that good at the transfers. And, and I mean, I'll admit it, I never went back and bought every one of the remasters. I bought only a handful of them. And it's the kind of thing where you really, it's then if you go back to your album, you know, I think you hear it differently, but I mean, who has an album that you can play in your car when you're, you know, when you're driving down the road? So I think a lot of it is we've heard different versions of it over the years that maybe weren't as good. These are just excellent versions of the original album. That was, it was funny because somebody said to me, well, do you think the album sounds good? Well, of course it sounds good. The original sounded good on an album in 1976. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, I think that they certainly were starting with something that was so good that, you know, to take then a little bit of today's technology, kind of broaden the sound a little bit with, I think, some EQ. Uh, you know, he was talking about going back to what were 16 tracks. And when you think of that now with the possibility of digital, and you say, wow, they created something that will really, I think in a lot of ways, has defined the band on 16 tracks. Right, and, and I mean, you get to appreciate what a monstrous uh, undertaking that must have been. Right. I mean, all those all those 70s records that are so lush, it must have been a nightmare to mix. Uh, l l let me ask a question about this as an album. Brian, um, you and I have talked a lot over the years about you know what makes an album an album versus a collection of singles. Why is Destroyer an album? I mean, it's just there's just wonderful continuity from song to song. It it it, it almost I mean it almost told a story in my mind the first time I listened to it. <laughs> even you know even if it really doesn't, the songs aren't really related. But I I had already heard I'd probably already listened to the Wall at that point, and not knowing for many years later that you know there was there was involvement by the same people, Bob Ezrin, of course, um, that there was just a, such a similarity between the two albums. Um, 
that everything just worked together, everything flowed together. And uh, that's not something uh, that you have on, you know, on rock and roll over necessarily. I, although I love that album, it's just not something that you hear there. Um, and it's not really something that you hear necessarily after Destroyer, I think. There is a continuity and it does kind of tell a story. I mean, and, and there are certain themes too. There's themes about fame and, I mean, certainly defining these characters, um, themes about what might set Kiss apart from other rock bands, um, and themes about the relationship between uh, the Kiss Army and Kiss. This was also the first appearance, I think, of the Kiss Army logo. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And I'm trying to remember if... Um, uh, Julian, did Originals come out after Destroyer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, would be, that was July 76, I think. Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to take us all down a uh, trip to Weird Town here. Um, I've always thought of it as a loose concept album in the sense that uh, it, it's almost like all something that's going on in a KISS fan's head, like it's an imaginary KISS world or KISS concert. And I think that the album ends either with the guy coming out of uh, some sort of an accident or dying at the end of the album. I think that this is, he's the guy that goes through the windshield, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and he's, he's either been to a Kiss concert or on his way to Kiss concert or something, but he's imagining this thing. And I almost like the idea that he's imagining what a Kiss concert's like that he never got to. And he's seeing God of Thunder and he's seeing Beth and he's seeing all these things and he has these great expectations. And at the end, that swirl, uh, you know, a rock and roll party just over and over and over again as he goes. Right. It's like his whole life or his whole kiss life flashing before him. I like that. I like that. It makes a lot of sense. Let, let, let me Only to this. me. Only to me. No, no, I get it. I, I've, I've, That's brilliant. Yeah. I, it's going to change how I listen to that. I, 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 <laughs> Julian, I wish- what do you think about that? Other than I'm off my rocker. <laughs> Other than you're off your rocker, well, you know, I'd have to think about that. No, it does seem to tie together um, and be very unified. I mean, Think of it, it's Ezrin. So, is he capable of doing a collection of singles? No, it's uh, an album, it's uh, got a beginning, it's got an end, it's, you know, these are chapters in a book. Uh, and that's one of the ways Very that well he, put, very well put. You know, that, that's, a, that's a Bob quote, I mean, he, he's referred to the album as a book, so um, it, it seems to, to meet all those uh, requirements to be, to meet, well, to be that... <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've always, I don't know about other people, but I've always heard that, um, you know, that feedback thing that Ace does in King of the Nighttime World as the ambulance that's coming. Wow. Incredible. No? So everyone hit pause and go listen to the album again. So there you go. <laughs> right, 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 right. One, one well, thing I can say about the Destroyer Resurrected is, uh, it's, it's like, uh, meeting a friend and, Meeting an old friend for the first time again, and you are listening to it with fresh ears, and I don't care how jaded of a Kiss fan you are, there's there's a newness to it all again. And for someone who's 49 years old and been a Kiss fan since, you know, Dress to Kill came out, uh, that that's kind of neat, kind of neat to be able to do that. I sure hope they do it with other records too. I mean, I don't imagine they will because it sounds like. Um Julian, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, it sounds like Bob Ezrin really sort of quarterbacked this thing. This wholly came from Bob. It was his idea, and he took it to the band, and uh, they actually went with it. So, um, 
good on Bob. Absolutely. What do you think motivated that? I mean, it was maybe it was last year's what 35th anniversary of the record, but you know, I think he's starting to look back at his career and see some of the seminal albums that he's been a part of. And when you get these anniversaries that come up, um, I think maybe he went back and listened to the album and said, well, you know, that was 1976. What could we do with modern technology with this? And we don't know what corners he may have had to cut in the in the production of the original album, but uh, he, he certainly uh, was up to the task, and I'm glad he did it. Me too. So let's go track by track, okay? We'll talk about the song in general, and then we'll talk about what they you know, what they resurrected. So we've got Detroit Rock City. It's very hard for me to think about how to how to discuss this song, you know, because it's just such a part of being a Kiss fan. Um, I will say that I've loved it from the first time I heard it. That's not true for every Kiss song, but Detroit Rock City. It might be, I think, one of the greatest songs they ever created. I mean, even even though we've heard it a million zillion times, I've said this before, but if hearing Detroit Rock City doesn't get your blood pumping, it might be time to find a new band because there's is there's just not that many songs that are as great as Detroit Rock City. Plus, you got to get up and get down, you know. Even more now because they added more of those get up, get downs back in, which now that's something we talk about the remix of this, but think about that. We had, as you just said, Double Platinum. Double Platinum had a remix shortly after the release of uh, Destroyer originally. So it's like we've already heard remixes of that as early as, what, was that 1978? So it's, it's we they added a couple of those get up, get downs back in, and it was like, oh, wow, look, I don't remember them doing that on the first time I heard it, but... Right. Well, there was even the, the single version, which which was very different in terms of how it was arranged from the... Or I guess right. or the, the sequence of things, right? Well, I think we've played on the show before, but just for the sake of it, let's give that a listen.
You know, one thing that that uh, really struck me hearing the resurrected version for the first time. It was it was like middle of the night when I finally downloaded it. And I, uh, I got home really really late from uh, being on call, and I put my headphones on. I, I I got in bed, closed my eyes, and when that explosion happens at the end of um, the car accident, right at the end of Detroit Rock City, that was the. It just felt like boom. It was so. Uh, intense I, I if you go back and listen to the original it's just sort of seems like it's happening across the street somewhere like down the block maybe there was a car accident right this one just punches now, you now now basically you're surrounded by glass it's right, unbelievable right. god it's it sounds so good and there's a bottom end that they they managed to uh excavate and put back on this record that i don't think it was there originally that thud that you uh-huh. feel is amazing on this mm-hmm. yeah well, that's the part I don't like because that's the new stuff added in. Ah. That, is, that, is, that does not sound like original material. He said he enhanced and uh, made some changes to certain parts. And with them not having, I believe, the original tracks for the introduction available, what you're getting is the the remaster version. And it's just uh, tweaked in certain ways. And that explosion, that's that's new. That's additions to embellish it. One of the guys from Kistry Science Theater, another fine podcast, uh, said it sounded like the car was made out of glass, that that the entire (laughs) vehicle was glass. So you're not hearing any steel, you're just hearing glass everywhere. And I thought that was kind of funny. Well, that ties ties into the idea that if he's going into a dream at this point, those aren't glass, that's angel wings, Ken. We're going to go with your concept album here. And that's what we're hearing. It's now angels (laughs) lifting him up into the sky to view this concert from above. How about that? And that's our show. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Is this before or after he escapes from the island? (laughs) Um, I'm sorry. Uh, No, that's cool. All right. When concept albums go bad on the next... <laughs> what do you think of the new version of Detroit Rock City, John Humphrey of Seether? Uh, I really love uh, this new mix that Bob has put to the entire album, and obviously uh, to the beginning uh, with Detroit Rock City and, and King of the Nighttime World, uh, starting right out, like you said, the, the great one-two punch. Um, I, I love reading the liner notes. I also got the LP version of this album, and, and it was sort of like a small two-page booklet that comes with it, and he talks about uh, having to uh, remix and, and how they used to uh, mix down to quarter-inch stereo tape with the effects on it that they didn't have uh, when they went back to visit, uh, I guess, when they archived it. So he says somewhere in there that he had to use the original uh, sound effects intro, and then he'd punch into the new mix, and that you could hear it. And I'm, I'm pretty anal going back through things. And uh, I couldn't hear where the where the sound effects kind of transitioned into the new mix. I think he did it very seamlessly. So I, I think it sounds great. And with the added bonus, uh, as he said he even had to add new effects to the to the car crash at the at the end of Detroit Rock City. I think it just sounds massive and huge. Very, uh, you know, has great great effect. My eight year old son was riding with me, and he's heard a lot of Kiss his entire existence of his eight short years and uh to hear the new detroit rock city all the way up to the car crash we had pulled right into a parking space as we were out and around in in that car crash that magnificent ending and i turned off the vehicle and he looked at me and said dad can we play that again when we leave that sounds awesome so uh i think it it just sounds great and it does man i'll tell you what and then we and then we've got a song the original demo for which 
kind of came to light within the past few years. And um, I have to say, uh, when I first heard uh, the original demo, not the Kiss demo, but the original demo for King of the Nighttime World, I was a little bit sad. Anyone else? Why were you sad, Gary? Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I saw, you know, I saw some Kiss names on the writing credits. And I think I wanted to think of it more as a Kiss song and not as a someone else song that that uh, that Kiss co-opted and added to. But my right. God, Julian, what do you know about it? Just it was, uh, as we all now know, it was originally a Hollywood star song. But wow, you listen to them one after the other and tell when they're not uh, two complete different songs at this point. You know, there's some little elements in the original Hollywood stars that you know it's just very plotting generic 70s rock and then you listen to kiss and once it's been given a couple of stanley editions and the full Ezrin treatment completely different beast it's a firecracker no, absolutely and that's my and that's that remains one of my favorite songs on the album so you know it's, I, a, I'm, it's a, I'm very biased even though obviously we now know that much more of it was uh, paid for no listen any any song that kiss get their mitts on you know, even if it is a straight-ahead 100% cover. I mean, something like New York Groove, for example. Or even uh, the Ramones uh, song that they covered. Rock and Roll Radio, yeah. I mean, whatever they get their hands on, they'd really turn into a Kiss tune, right? Yeah. And, and, and Brian, I'm, I'm thinking back to your first Kiss concert, which, you know, which I had the pleasure of going to with you. Um, still my favorite Kiss concert that I've ever seen. It was uh, November 11th, I think, 1998, Meadowlands Arena in New Jersey. Yep. And I feel like King of the Nighttime World was one of those standout moments. Oh yeah, I mean I, I've 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 been I've been waiting since then to hear them play that again. And wow. I, you know, right. yeah, that was that was just fantastic. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely you know that Matt Matt, Matt often uses the line uh, about the dirty things that we do. Matt, how do you usually say that when you introduce your show? The uh, well, I actually on my uh, on the last episode that we did of the Kiss Room, it was a uh, a back to school episode, mm-hmm. and of course the line is, you know, it's it's no fair going to school. So I said it's not so bad going to school because you get to be here with me and all the cool things that we do. Right. You know, working at a college, you can't really go with too many of the songs that are like, you know, dropped out of school when I was twenty two because hey, that's our age group, but that's fine. <laughs> right. Yeah, if you leave college at 22, you're you're in good shape. You're good. You're in good shape. You're right on track. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. But um, yeah, yeah they're, they're, I, they, they definitely were reaching out to a bigger audience. I think uh, the guitars are just huge overall, especially those first three songs: Detroit Rock City, King of the Nighttime World, and God of Thunder. And thank God, there's bass on the album now. So much low end, great low end. I have a, a wonderful bow system in my truck that I'm able to use when I'm driving around being dad when I'm home taking kids to school and picking them up from football practice. So I'm really getting to uh, crank this album on a, on a great stereo. And, and just to hear bass on the album is fantastic. And I know one of Bob's signature tricks was to kind of use um, uh, piano cording uh, along with the power chords to kind of mm-hmm. simulate a real full effect. And uh, I think in the the original mix, to me, the piano was so, you know, uh, obvious. I don't know. It just didn't 
seamlessly sort of mesh to make the guitar sound full, at least in my opinion. So yeah, now it, I, it, it always seemed kind of strange to have the piano there, but I mean it, it works. But it yeah, it's just when a Kiss fan back in the day thought of it as that, it, it just seemed strange, you know. Exactly. And now it, it's it's a little buried. You can hear how it, maybe he initially meant it to be, and now with that low end and bass, the guitars just have so much punch. And then right away, right into King of the Nighttime World, Bono. Now it just sounds sounds great, sounds heavy. And um, um, I know I'm repeating myself here, but I just I just think uh, the, the mix is very very strong, and I, I really like it. I would agree. I remember hearing King of the Nighttime World live in 1996 on the reunion tour, and when Ace knelt down by those amplifiers, and that feedback started from me. It was the second song right after Deuce, but my goosebumps had goosebumps. That was a defining moment. And remember how the amps started to kind of raise up uh, on reunion tour. The amps actually raised up from behind the stage, like tilted forward as that they were they came forward on the stage to him mm -hmm. as he started doing that feedback. And I just, like you said, goosebumps. I remember thinking just visually as far as, you know, and obviously the stage show is, is a whole other podcast, but that effect of that whole wall of amps kind of rising up, amazing. Unbelievable. I loved it. And if I you take it. King of the Nighttime World and Detroit Rock City, they are taking you by the ears and slapping your face and, and just assaulting <laughs> you musically. I'm really sad that they don't do that one-two punch. You know, I mean, I, I, I never got to hear that live. I guess, um, I don't know, I guess no one here did. Oh, I don't know, Matt, did you ever see them on the Destroyer tour? No, I didn't. I just didn't see them till later. And Ken, it was the Rock and Roll Over tour where you saw them, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, that'd be fantastic. I really wish they would do that. I want to play a version of King of the Nighttime World that I don't think we usually get to hear. Um, and this is uh, Kiss at the Foundations Forum in L.A., 1993, I think. Yeah, this is the Revenge lineup, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer. It's not the greatest quality, but the music is awesome. Give this a listen.
So now we get to a song that we got a, a really neat version of on the box set, something that um, kind of, uh, no offense to Paul Stanley, but I think explains why Ezrin handed it over to Gene, right? God of Thunder. I can't imagine if they'd gone forward with this being a Paul Stanley song. First of all, you'd have three Paul Stanley songs in a row. It'd be like the Paul Stanley solo album. <laughs> Does anybody think it would have had any kind of near the same kind of impact that God of Thunder had as a Gene song? No chance. It's just too yeah. damn happy. Exactly. I think the remix on here is where you really start to hear him doing different things with the with the tracks because it's this one. I think the guitars sound like they're panned out farther. The drums seem to be way up front, and there seems to be a lot more kind of noises in the background, like things that you didn't hear before. That it, I think, it, it gives it even that more of evil kind of a vibe. And in my mind, like we we're talking about, what do you think of when you listen to these songs? I've always kind of pictured, like you know how like in in Marvel comics like Loki or Mephisto would be sitting on those big throne kind of things with like all kind of just smoke and everything around that to me that's what I thought those kid voices were I before I knew that that was his kids making all the noise in the background they were little demons or something and there's flames oh, yeah. and and then there's something in this mix there's like it sounds like somebody almost saying like going goo, 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 like in, like there's this weird kind of yes. sound in the back what is, what is that anybody have any idea no, but I, I, I noticed the same thing as well. But yeah, no, I noticed that too. I, and I, I'll tell you something. Talk about, again, the bass sounding so punchy. I, I don't know if Ezrin did this when he was remixing it, but it seems like the bass kind of comes in and stops, comes in and stops, and it in a good way. It kind of works as a rhythm section with the drums. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think Peter's drums really sound more out front on this one. Like as I was listening to it, specifically that you know that rhythm that he creates on here, which is something you think of when they do it live, when they strip it way back, and he's just doing that rhythm. I, I think it comes through on this mix more than just about most of any other song on here. I think God of Thunder really seems to benefit. And yes. Peter Peter Chris really shines on this album. Uh, anyone. Oh Anyone that can't uh, hear that uh, has makeup in their ears or something. Something's <laughs> something's wrong with people. And uh, uh, you know, I remember Rolling Stone when they reviewed this, they they gave uh, a little knock to Pete, and and that's not cool because really, what what more can a guy do uh, to to you know make this happen? This he 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 just is he transcends his previous work and and i know that ezrin made him work really hard for this but it, it all shows it's all there the blood is on you know, the track peter has no absolutely and peter has said as much uh, uh himself he you know, i i think peter actually really appreciated bob ezrin's work on destroyer and how, how how hard he made him work i think poor peter if i'm not mistaken was crammed into an elevator with his drums to record god of thunder mm. And that's how you get that booming sound, and it sounds so crisp on this on this uh, version of it. Um, yeah, talking about it is making me want to listen to it again. Brian, God of Thunder was one of those moments at that first Kiss concert, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was that was probably at, at the time my favorite, maybe my favorite Kiss song. And uh, yeah, I just lost it when they when they did that. And then uh, you know when they when they moved around the set list in in later years, I was sort of you know I was okay to see it go for a while, but it wasn't long before I 
was sort of ready for them to bring it back. It's definitely still one of my favorite Kiss songs. Um, just a phenomenal moment on the album, phenomenal moment in the concerts. I think we're all glad to see it return this year as well. I think Absolutely. they're really smart this year to have uh, that and War Machine and I Love It Loud in the set list. It's um, Monster's not out yet, but you know this is the Monster stage and this is the Monster costumes and Monster's coming soon and and uh, having three big booming Gene songs is not a bad thing. Uh, at least from where I sat. I don't want to step off too far from the the beaten path, but aren't you guys surprised that they didn't work with Universal a little bit more and make this tour built around the the Destroyer Resurrected? I mean, it would have, it seemed like it could have fit perfect, and then boom, they come out with Monster. You know, when they when it when it comes out, why not do that? To me, it seemed like the logical thing. I think they really don't be logical. Well, but even I think that they're, they're trying hard to avoid being, you know, they they seem to want to avoid anything to do with Ace and Peter. And I think they really blew it by not making some kind of an event that really had the four original members together either for a photo shoot or a press conference or something. They could have went to the damn this. monster golf thing and, and well, done it there. You well, know? that's that's the monster album. you got to wait. That's what's going ah, on. I'm saying, but for like Detroit Rock City, I mean, is Cobo Hall officially all the way smashed out? I mean, you figure if, there's, if there was any of that left, you go there, you hold the new artwork, anything, but it should have celebrated the four original members. It definitely think, was a missed opportunity. And the fact that they're out on tour, okay, maybe they don't want to be bothered, or maybe Ace and Peter don't want to be bothered, or whatever, but they should have done something. And and to say the tour, okay, that maybe they don't want to put the focus on Ace and Peter while they're out with, with other people in the tour, they should have done some kind of, of an event for this yes. that was all four original members. Yes, and I totally get why they didn't. I mean, sure. even last night I read a, a new-ish interview with Paul Stanley where without it's on Kiss Asylum right now, uh, another great website. But it, even without asking specifically about Ace and Peter, it, this, the question still came up about the 40th anniversary, and Paul kind of preempted it. He, you know, he got right in there and said, yes, we, we're probably going to celebrate the 40th anniversary of this band with the current lineup. I mean, if they had even gotten together for like a press conference, you know, with, with Ace and Peter, just to say like, "Yeah, we're really proud of Destroyer. That was great. You know, have a nice day." It, the the it would be no end of questions about when are you guys getting together. But even if they can, even if they just controlled it more, even if they didn't have necessarily even questions. You, in a way, I think they owe it to themselves, even if maybe after all this time that they don't – maybe they don't all see eye to eye and obviously they're off doing separate things, to just sit together, shake hands and say, look, this is something we created that will outlive us all and it's back again sounding as good as ever. And the fact that here we are all these years later wanting to talk about it even, it I think they really should put aside whatever. I mean some of them do it more than others, but they should stop – putting each other down, you know, Gene uh-huh. on Rockline giving Peter crap or whatever. Guys, guys, it's the time to really celebrate something that will outlive us all. And especially in light of doing things like a live 35 tour. And, you know, so last year it was okay to do that, or two years ago it was okay to do that. This year it's not. It just yep. seems a bit disingenuous. Absolutely. I think Destroyer 36 would sound weird, though. <laughs> I think Destroyer 37 would be even better. <laughs> yeah. 
think well, when no, we I, look at what's happened throughout the year and them getting back in bed with Universal, I don't think they're really thinking along the lines of how they promote this as a product. Um, I think I'm just really happy this was not made a bonus disc to Monster. Right. Yes. Oh, my God, yes. Absolutely. And that brings us to John. What about God of Thunder? Again, this was a version that took me a little while getting used to. Like I said, initially, God of Thunder from Kiss Alive 2 was the one I was very used to. So from uh, from Double Platinum and the Destroyer version with the kids and the helmets and the effects uh, wasn't really always a favorite of mine. But here we go again. Uh, I think this sounds great. I think it has so much balls to it now, so heavy uh, that I, I kind of like the, that sort of trippy, scary effect, which was the initial you know, thing that Bob was going for with with the helmets and with their boy with his boys running around and, and making all that noise, and I just think it sounds dark, heavy, ominous, all those descriptive words, and and really, you know, is a full effect. And and I just have to say again, Destroyer, though it's loaded with classic songs, was never my favorite version of these songs, and this new remix really is a game changer for me. And this is another song that. You know, um, received great changes that I think really is, you know, changed my mind on how I feel about this version of the song. Now that you mention it, my, my wife feels the same way. She, she loves a lot of the songs on Destroyer, but Destroyer, the album itself, is never a big favorite of hers. Why do you think that is? I, I think just the, I, I don't know. I think, uh, the band's a live band, of course, in, you know, the cliche statement, you want to get to the band, uh, you want to understand the band, get the live albums, which, you know, uh, so Alive and Alive 2, versions of those songs on both uh, sets of albums are the ones that just are the heaviest and really represent the band the best and the way they are live. So to hear the, the studio trickery and everything they were going for with Destroyer, those versions of the songs, I just don't think it had the oomph, for, for lack of a better word or description, that but the with, songs the songs but, needed, you know. Yeah, so but with resurrected, there's a little more oomph now. So oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the bass and the bottom end, the guitars, they're just so they're so present and uh, and 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 loud and distorted and um, not a bad distortion, but a good rock, you know, guitar distortion that just really makes the songs great. I mean, I I, I downloaded it when the thing came up on iTunes, uh, you know, the two weeks prior to the actual release, and I mean, I'm at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, listening to the thing, emailing buddies, going, "Have you? Got, you've got to go get this, man. This sounds great. I mean, am I crazy? <laughs> this sounds not a little different, but a lot different, you know." And some fans were were talking and and blogging and saying, like, you know, they're you know getting us to buy another version of Destroyer. Who wants a remastered version? I'm like, no, this isn't a remaster, guys. This is a remix. This mm-hmm. is a different different deal altogether. It's a different beast. Let's listen to the original lineup doing a live version of God of Thunder. This is this is actually from 1976, so enjoy.
Let's wrap up side one of Destroyer and of Destroyer Resurrected with a song that has always been uh, one of my tops. This is Great Expectations. What do you guys think of this track, Brian? Oh, I love it. I mean, it's I, I, I don't know what to say about this track. It's wonderful. It's a great way to end, end the, out, the side of the album. Um, I love the uh, the choral voices, which is such an interesting touch. Um, definitely something you, or something I doubt you would see without, uh, without Ezrin's hand in the mix. Um, it's a wonderful song. Yeah. I loved when they very, did it. Very different Gene track, but different, but 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 works. It it works with Gene. Yeah, and I love when they did it in 2003. They got some of those those other alternate or older lyrics in there where they're talking about the other members of the band, and it's not just first person. But I, I, I'll tell you something. Ezrin has a way of getting vocal performances out of people, not just quality of singing, like hitting all the right notes, but hitting them the right way. As a as a Pink Floyd fan, I love what he and Roger Waters did together because he got Roger Waters' personality on every single word. And same with Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Like, couldn't have been better. John? I think Great Expectations, uh, again, sounds great. I, I think maybe this song is the, the one least affected by the remix, at least in my opinion. Uh, the strings always sounded really full and, and uh, great dynamics. So uh, 
uh, initially this song just sounds just as orchestral and, and full and round as it, it did originally. So to me, of the entire album, this one uh, seems to be least affected by, by the remix. Matt, what do you think about Great Expectations? Great Expectations is one of those songs that definitely changed as I got older and started to realize more what he was talking about. Uh, whereas maybe the start of the album, you know, we're okay, it's a car crash, we want to have a party, uh, God of Thunder clearly is a superhero. Now you can, this, I always think as I got older, this song became sexier and sexier because it's clearly Gene undressing some groupie from the stage. And uh, the power of this song to me, especially now that we've seen Gene running around in his red foot, jammies this is the gene you want to think about gene that's larger than life that there's girls just going berserk and uh that clearly he has the control of the crowd and i think this defines that larger than life vibe or character that should be gene simmons brian do you remember what you turned to me and said during the concert uh we saw them in concord um last month it was awesome awesome concert by the way if you can see the tour go see the tour kiss or smoking but Brian turned to me in the middle of the concert. He says, you know what really looks weird? Do you remember what it was? No, no. Oh, it was Gene's, Gene's wedding ring. Oh, Gene's wedding ring. Oh, yeah, that was. <laughs> it did look weird. Very strange. Weird. Julian, is there anything you can tell us about the origins of this track? Not really. I think a lot of it comes from Gene's pre-Kissery time. You know, it's uh, his bits and pieces of lyrics. I love this song as the end of side one. It's just such a great contrast to God of Thunder, but it's also so Gene, where you get the full demon being presented in the uh, the resurrected version of God of Thunder. You're also getting the clarity of every single nuance now coming out in Great Expectations, and it's just a you know it's really a brilliant contrast piece. Very Ken, cool. what about you? Um, I kind of miss vinyl. I kind of miss the old days when that was the only format we had, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think this is a very cool and Beatle, uh, kind of Beatlesque type track. Uh, it is um, a sexualized uh, thing from Mr. Simmons. I, I would like to know, like, how they came upon doing this track. I, I would love to know, like, whose idea was it? Like, like, did did Ezra push Gene, or you know? Does, does anybody know anything about that? It was Bob. Bob, I was thinking. Yeah. Because I almost don't see Gene stepping outside of what he's done prior to this with Kiss. Uh, you know, because it, it it's strange. The demon kind of changed from when we first saw him to, to, to this point. And this is a little glimpse behind that... Uh, character that that we hadn't seen prior to this except that you know i mean i don't want to get too heavy-handed about it but you know if you think about the devil right the devil yeah the devil's all evil and like matt was saying you know uh sitting on his throne surrounded by fire and brimstone but then he also sometimes offers you an apple right right and this is you know this is great expectations where he's like hey you want to you want to go back to my hotel room? <laughs> like, everything's, <laughs> yeah. Let's let's see what we could do. You know, um, so there's sort of that seductive quality to it, and and very demonic, but very uh, very different. And I love it for that reason. You know, and Ken just mentioned how he misses vinyl. 
think of that, this was clearly the end of the side, and now you have it as just, you know, track four, and it mixes in with the rest of the album. And I think going back even to what we talked about, the idea of now it was available on download on iTunes, things like that, do you think that the digital age, can you imagine that somebody is picking and choosing through this album on iTunes and saying, oh, maybe I'll take track three because I know God of Thunder and, well, I'll take uh, track, you know, Beth or whatever and skipping maybe this. And it's not the end of the album side. And it's would how does Great Expectations fit to somebody who do you think there's people out there that are getting Destroy or Resurrected and that's their first taste of Kiss and they're not necessarily listening to it the way we did? So they're it's, basically just fishing for the hits. It's a right. shame I mean, if they are. You know, and I think I think it really it speaks a lot to one, I think the fact that we all kind of experienced it as an album and you know, obviously like you've mentioned a couple times, Pink Floyd, things like that. Things that had specific sequences and that's how they were supposed to be experienced. Whereas now it's like, eh, here it is and we'll we'll put it up on iTunes a couple weeks early and then you'll have to wait to go get it in the record store. Now do you think that they did that just so people are gonna buy it twice? Do you think like I waited for the C D, but do you think that and do you think they did that on purpose? Of course they did it on purpose, and I'll tell you it worked. Um, I absolutely <laughs> – I dug my heels into the ground, and I said, I am not going to buy this. I am not going to buy this. I read a few more things on a fine website named KissFact, and people were saying, oh, this is fantastic. you got to get it. you got to get it. And by the end of that hour – I was like uh, a beggar over at iTunes. Please, may I have some more, sir? And I downloaded the whole damn of, thing. By the end of reading all that stuff on KissFAQ, you had bought Destroyer for the 87th time. Yes, and then I ordered it off Amazon and, you know. And How many times have people bought? I mean, collectively, what do we have? Probably like 15, 20 well, no wonder this is Kiss's biggest seller. We've all bought it nine times each. So, <laughs> really though, and we'll keep buying it. I mean, it, it's one of those records like Dark Side of the Moon or Sgt. Pepper that you know. All right. So, so let's lay it out on the table before we flip side two over. Just to vote around the room, if this comes out two years from now, same mix except for the fixed glitches, and which we we'll, we will get to uh, on side two, uh, but. They, they have the fixed glitches and another disc, either a DVD of Anaheim or the fabled uh, bonus tracks. Would you buy this again? Of course. So there you go, Universal. Julian, would you buy it again? Not if it came with Anaheim. Ah, but if it came with the disc of tracks? The second oh, of disc? Course. Okay. Of course, I'd have to scan it for the website. I have to buy it. That's well, there my you excuse. Go. <laughs> Brian? I would, but I have a I have a confession to make. I I have yet to uh, to purchase Destroyer Resurrected. Sinner, sinner, sinner. Um, Gary, Matt. You know what? Yeah. Did you hear the rumor about that they're actually going to re-release it with the new albums in the glove compartment of a full-size car, and the box set now costs twenty-seven thousand dollars. Well, there you go. <laughs> And now it's time to flip over this record. We will see you on side two. And that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. 
Big thanks to Julian and everyone at KissFAQ.com. They've got great information there and a terrific message board, too. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulik, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late, great Eric Carr, and the late, great Mark St. John. You are KISS, and we are your army. Podcast is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podcast is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podcast crew, thank you for listening to Podcast, the KISS fanzine for your ears. <laughs>